Earlier this year, I finally watched the Hulu show Rami. The show's creator, Rami Youssef, won a Golden Globe Award this year for the show. It's set in northern New Jersey and follows the life of a young Muslim guy whose parents immigrated to the U.S. from Egypt. In an interview for Vulture, Youssef said, A lot of immigrant stories on TV and film, I feel like I'm watching someone upgrade into a white lifestyle. And this show is a wrestling match of wanting to be in both. An episode that stuck with me shows how Rami's family reacted in the aftermath of September 11th. A young Rami logs into a chat room to see people quickly pinning it all on Muslims in general. His dad immediately hangs an American flag outside their home. And the next morning, on the walk to school, he faces this conversation with his friends. Hey, man, can I ask you something? Yeah. What's up? Are you a terrorist? What? No, like... Are you, uh... Um... He means, like, is your family terrorist? Like, are you Arabic and stuff? We were just wondering because, you know, you're from the Middle East and everything, so we thought maybe you guys were terrorists. Guys, I'm from Egypt. It's not even the Middle East. Egypt's in Africa. If anything, I'm black. As you'll hear in today's interview, this grappling with one's Muslim identity at this time was not uncommon. The country was thrust into a panic, quickly attentive to a religious identity that many may not have ever paid attention to before. As a young Christian kid in the Midwest, it was certainly the first time I had ever heard of Islam, or even the notion of terrorism. So without giving it a second thought, it might seem like those two things go hand in hand. But what do things look like now? How does the American public think about Muslims in the U.S.? What are the roadblocks keeping Muslims from politically representing their communities? And is there hope for tolerance around the corner? You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell. And this week, I have a lovely conversation with Nazida Lajavardi, who's a political scientist at Michigan State University and an attorney. She studies issues related to public opinion and political behavior through the lens of religious and racial identity. In 2020, she published the book Outsiders at Home, The Politics of American Islamophobia. The book is an extension of her research on public opinion about Muslims in the United States, discrimination faced by Muslim Americans in politics, and the experience of facing these biases. In our conversation, we talk about all these questions and what makes Muslim American identity so tricky to pin down. Her work has had a real influence on how I think about these issues, and I'm excited to share our conversation. So let's get right into it. So before we get into what the book is about and and, and other stuff that, that you do, one thing I'm very curious about is the fact that you are a JD PhD. <laughs> And I'm yeah. curious because my wife is a JD and I'm a PhD and you have managed ah. to do both of what we've done as one person. <laughs> no. So I, I'm mostly curious why that would yeah. happen to a person and also what that has meant for how you think about the problems that you study. Yeah, so um, I was one of those undergraduate students, and I don't know how many of them there are who make it into academia, but who... I faced a lot of like financial barriers going to undergraduate school. Um, and so I attended three different schools in four years. And um, I transferred to the UC system from community college. And uh, my only goal was to graduate as soon as possible without debt. And uh, then I went to law school. So 
was a good idea. Um, but, you know, I was graduating in the middle of a recession and um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And it was really becoming clear that uh, to help a, my family, I needed a job that was going to support them. And uh, they really thought that becoming a lawyer was the clearest way to that goal. And I, I hadn't really seen or found anything that made me, you know, question that. I hadn't really felt a passion for anything. I had always loved politics. I was a political science major. I was a French major. But I never, I didn't know that you could study these questions. <laughs> like, I didn't know that you could become a professor. I didn't know, I, like, I just, I didn't know any of this. Like, you know, we were, we were dealing with, like, questions of like, are we going to be homeless? And then are we like, you know what I mean? And so Mm -hmm. it just like, I didn't have the role modeling, I think. And then I I'm sitting there at UCLA in my last year, and I've already taken the LSAT and applied to law school. And here I am taking classes with people studying race and ethnicity. And in, you know, in Africa and France and in um, the US and LA about populations that I belong to. And Mm -hmm. I was like, whoa, I could be like them, you know? <laughs> and my parents were like, it's too late. Hmm. It's too late. Like, we do not need you hanging around, you know, California. Anyways, so I, I ended up in law school and that was rough. You know, it's I, I really tell my students, like, do not go to law school because you don't know what else to do. Hmm. I'm really one of those people who did that. And I was very fortunate. I found that I enjoyed criminal law and I ended up, uh, working in, in criminal law and specializing in it. And um, I actually accepted an offer as an ABA in Sacramento uh, when I was uh, in my 3L year. But I, you know, nonetheless, I took the GRE and I um, I found a way to apply <laughs> to to uh, to graduate school. And I kind of so, just took a risk. and. So you did them sequentially, not at the second. I know because sometimes there are like, and there are different versions of this plan where people do them somehow it at the same time. It would be the wiser thing yeah. to do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, it would have made more sense. And uh, no, 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 no. I, I really, I really did this poorly. But I think that my, um, my experience in law school has really shaped the questions that I ask, and um, I think it's been very informative. It, it, I think it's been very helpful. So I build arguments now thinking about the totality of the circumstances. Hmm. I think about evidentiary burdens. I think about like opening arguments for me are like an introduction, you know, to a paper. I think about what it takes to win a case and what it takes to overwhelm reviewers with an argument. And so I think those types of skills never really go away. And moreover, I think that law is foundational to politics and you don't have especially race in America without the law. And I think that at least in the way that I've written papers and I've thought about these stigmatized populations, particularly Muslims, they are not marginalized without shifts in policy that have empowered law enforcement, for instance. Um, And so it's I think it's connected. I hope it's connected. <laughs> you know, it's it's a bigger it's a bigger waste of time and money than I than I thought. But yeah, I was definitely one of those students who um, couldn't figure it out. But you know, got it in the end, I hope. 
and you know, life is, <laughs> it's no good if it's stagnant. So. <laughs> there, there's a weird, you know, one of those things where it's a little trite to say, but it all works out or this is always the way it was supposed to be. I had, so my first year of undergrad, I went to an art school and I was like, this okay. is what I want to do. I want to go to art school and, and all these things. And then quickly realized like, ah, no, <laughs> that's not you what I want to do. You don't want to go to art school. Yeah, but... <laughs> Yeah. But I, I would never get rid of that because it set me up so much for other stuff, right? To yeah. to take a sort of creative spin on what is otherwise the sort of very clear path of <laughs> academic research to be like, well, how do we talk about it? And how do we share it? And can we do it in creative ways? Um, and so in the same way I go, yeah, I sort of went thinking I knew what was the best for me. And clearly that wasn't the case. But I had to do that, right? If I didn't do that, I wouldn't know what I wanted to do. It makes you relatable. Like, you didn't do it perfect. (laughs) I think that, you know, there's a lot of people who are like, I was a first year, I was a freshman, and I started doing research with this famous professor at that famous school. And, you know, now I'm a second year PhD student with a CV that looks like a tenured faculty member from 10 years ago. And, like, congratulations. (laughs) Like, good job, you know? (laughs) I didn't do that. And it's fine. So it's fine. Yeah, it is amazing to see sometimes the those people who are applying to grad school now and you go, holy, like, I had no concept. But somehow they knew from day one, like, oh, here's the plan to be a professor in 10 years. You go, oh, They had role models, you know, this is (laughs) all down to role modeling and which is like, great. I'm really glad somebody mentored you through that. But you know, I think most of us kind of were figuring it out. Maybe not most of us, but at least some of us were, you know, we had to figure it out. And I think that makes us more, I don't know, maybe just okay to roll with the punches. Mm-hmm. You know, like rejection kind of feels like name of the game. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it hurts, it stings, of course, you know. Um, but like, I don't expect it to all work out. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of like surprised when it does and still kind of like, oh, wow, like, (laughs) that's nice. You know, just I kind of expect there to be some mishaps. And, you know, I think I think it's important to learn how to deal with that kind of thing. Totally. So if we if we jump into the the work that you've done in the broad domain, it's interesting that one thing I want to say is the cover of the book is beautiful. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Yeah. It's just so attention grabbing. <laughs> and and maybe that was part of why I just was like, well, yeah, no, I have to read this thing. Where, where did that, do, do you have any, this is sort of tangential to what the work is, but I'm so curious. <laughs> it's um, okay. So when I approached publishers about the book, I asked them if it would be okay if I helped to design the cover and this is kind of atypical for university presses that are just trying to publish in a specific area. Um, but when they asked me to explain why, I told them that I wanted this book to be different and to show on its cover what the argument of the book is. And that it was important for me to to make it as simple as possible, but as clear as possible. And that I don't think a title is going to do that, that I don't think, um, you know, an abstract is going to do that, that it needs to be on the cover and it needs to reflect everything like the, the, it needs to, it needs to reflect the climate. And so the, from the color of the book, from that pink Mm -hmm. from that salmon color 
to her sunglasses, to her very loose headscarf with her hair falling out. Hmm. This to me was the modern Muslim woman, you know, in her 20s and 30s, who is from here, who is growing up witnessing and observing this hostility and this discrimination and her unhappy lips and her frown and her, it just all is what it feels like to take in this world where you think you're at home, you're, you have the cool sunglasses, like you have the salmon colored, you're, you're in, but you're not in, you know, and you're observing it and you're reacting in a way that makes you aware that this is uncomfortable and I wanted it all to show. And so if you ever open the book and you look at the first page, there is another picture and that was supposed to be the cover of the book. Hmm. And it was really between the two. And um, in the end I went with this woman because I think she, she's, she, she makes a statement, I think in political science but also I think, you know, just to the average reader, which is like, you're, if you want to know what this book is about, it's about what it feels like, you know, at the very end, the last chapter, mm-hmm. it's like what it feels like to live in this world. That's what it feels like. And yeah, the, 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 <laughs> the second page, I think also does that a little bit more um, directly um and maybe there's too much going on which is why we sort of settled on on the first one but yeah the, the, her expression is telling right and it sort of harkens to the the points that you make about where other marginalized groups can get sort of fired up and called to action there's this tendency among muslims in the u.s where facing this kind of bias and discrimination leads to sort of a retreat right and sort of like a well, let's let's back away from this. So yeah, it, yeah. it communicates all of that in, in such a simple way. So I'm glad there is a story. <laughs> and you weren't there just like, I don't story. know, someone drew a picture. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was and it was very deliberate. It was um, in consultation with one of my really good friends who um, is an artist and uh, was also writing a book uh, about about Muslims during this this period of time. And so and it's the the art was commissioned by a Muslim artist from from Indonesia, actually, who uh, works with her uh, very closely. Um, and so it was the whole thing was just like a very creative effort. And so for someone like you who has gone to art school, I mean, maybe that's <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's cool. For me, it was the first time I've ever done anything like that. So yeah, super. And it's I mean, to your point, I've never said this about any other academic book cover before. <laughs> That, that I like noticed it and really appreciated and spent some time appreciating it. Um, and it makes sense. I'm not surprised that that is not like the priority, <laughs> but I'm, I'm happy to see that, that there is at least, and, and maybe we'll see that this, this moves the needle a little bit, that that, that becomes a more so. deliberate part of the argument. It is, you know, I've seen it in other fields, like certainly in media studies, mm-hmm. I've seen it on their book covers. And so that's been an inspiration to me. And I also, you know, I was told by some people that if your book looks too punchy and it's too pink and it's too this and that it won't be taken seriously. And that Mm -hmm. almost pushed me to make it even more obvious Mm -hmm. and more different because, okay, fine. Judge it by its cover, you know, go ahead to have a, have a closer look. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's intriguing enough that, that you open it. So one of the things, I, I think the thing that really most, as someone who really hasn't spent a ton of time thinking about these particular, you know, I've, I, I, one of the classes I teach most often is stereotypes and prejudice. Uh, yeah. But the unique dilemma of Muslim identity is not one that I had grappled with. And that to me was like the real light bulb moment where... Mm-hmm you sort of try to disentangle like what's the primary identity that people are having a problem with? Is it a religious identity? Is it a race identity? Is it a geopolitical identity? So could you talk a little bit about like what Muslim American means to people in the world and how that defines the problem and how it challenges the research on trying to understand what's going on? Sure. Yeah. That's. I mean, you really hit the nail on the head right there. I think that um, so I'm going to talk about people in the United States because I think people in the world is is a bit broader, um, and I'll, I'll explain why. So Muslims, predominantly from the Middle East, if we're going to sort of narrow our our range of of who we're talking about in South Asia, their immigration histories to the United States and to Europe and other. Um, Western democracies really differ from one another. Um, the different laws and quotas that have existed um, that have been able to bring different subsets of Muslim populations, immigrant Muslim immigrant populations to the United States, they differ greatly. Um, often in Europe, they're um, conditioned by refugee laws, by colonial histories. And so the populations that you see in in Europe and in, even amongst the different European countries, they they really differ from what we see in the United States. And so I always, you know, whenever I'm presenting this work in, in Europe, I'm always telling people, you know, don't think about the Muslims that you know in your country. Let me give you a primer on the immigration histories and what the Muslim population looks like in the United States. Because it's very different. It's very, very different. And so just to kind of paint a picture, in 2017, the Pew Research Center did a survey of um, Muslims in America, um, so, and it's a telephone survey that they do every few years um, to try to gauge, you know, where the population is, but also to kind of give us an estimate of how many there are in the United States, um, because the census doesn't collect data on religion, and because folks from the Middle East and North Africa are classified under um, the white category, the white Caucasian category, white non-Hispanic. And so any sort of differences that you may want to highlight and you may want to use in order to try to estimate that population size are going to be marred with um, the exclusion of Amina category and also with um, no data collection on religion. And so what we've learned from Pew is that today, 20% of American Muslims are Black. And the vast majority of those, um, that black population is native born. Um, And this should not be a surprise as the first Muslims in the United States um, were actually forcibly enslaved people. Um, About 30% of um, enslaved people who were forcibly brought to the United States uh, were Muslim and they were forced to actually convert uh, to Christianity. Um, and remnants of like the Muslim identity actually still exist, you know, off the coast of Georgia. Um, there's this really um, interesting uh, 
dance that's uh, akin to like a Sufi ritual called the ring shout that took place, you know, in the South um, that has actually been recorded. And I only ever learned about by visiting the um, National African American History Museum that opened up in D.C. And, you know, when I looked it up, there it was like (laughs) there it was. It was really remarkable to see. Um, And so so people people often don't realize that. And so what does it mean that the black Muslim population in your country is not a, you know, from from a country that you colonized, but from forcibly enslaved people who were brought here, right, who you've struggled with in terms of racial and civil liberties as well. Um, so that's that's one population. Currently, 7% of the U.S. Muslim population is Hispanic. And so you're seeing among the Muslim population, so not only is it growing at incredibly fast rates in the United States, the fastest growing subgroup is among Latinos, Latinx people. So very interesting to understand that racial diversity as well. And then finally, the vast majority of Muslims in America were born abroad, 58% were born in another country. But of that 58%, like over 80% have US citizenship. And so this this kind of complicates our narrative, right? This complex, like who is this group? What are we thinking about? And how do they relate to other Muslims and other in other democracies? Well, you can't compare them. You, you really can't. Um, coming to the United States is already hard enough for any immigrant population. And on top of that, you have so much diversity from where people are coming from. And you're getting a selection effect where oftentimes the Muslim population that you're getting are um, that are coming from abroad are highly, highly selective. And oftentimes they mirror, if not surpass the white population on socioeconomic demographics. So, so it's complicated. It's complicated who these people are. Now I've told you who they are, but who the ordinary average American thinks they are is very different. So in the minds of the average American, it's hard to to paint a linear picture because the tropes about Muslims have evolved over time. Um, and and the concern about Muslims has evolved over time. And I think it's important to to understand that events matter and that context matters. And oftentimes in political science, that's not that's not a satisfactory answer. And people just kind of want to hear about a game between they want to hear about a game between two entities uh, where like the positions of the two groups are fixed and they're not. Hey, everyone. Uh, It's just me. Uh, I'm just letting you know that we had a little technical glitch while we were having this conversation. Um, The call got dropped and then when it picked up, the audio quality had changed and and I couldn't quite figure out how to edit smoothly in between one to the next. And so this is just a quick little note uh, as a transition from the, the one half of our call and the other. But for all intents and purposes, we pick up where we left off. Okay, so, so sorry to bother you. So if you think about the 80s, or rather the 70s and 80s, you know, that's a time where Muslims became salient to um, Americans through what was happening more um, by Muslim-majority countries. So you can think about the Iran hostage crisis. Um, you could think about what was going on in Lebanon. Um, you could think about the Iran-Iraq war. Um, <clears throat> countries were becoming salient, Muslim countries were becoming salient, and so their populations here in the United States were becoming 
salient. And so it was much more tied to interests of um, foreign policy, of uh, foreign wars that were being fought. Um, and so the, the Muslim in the American imaginary was really a Middle Eastern in the American imaginary. And it was really targeted at national origin. It was Iranians in the American imaginary. It was Lebanese in the American imaginary. It was Iraqis. Um, it was about Yemen, you know? And so it wasn't necessarily about Muslim. And so this Orientalist picture that we've had of, you know, this barbaric, violent, backwards, misogynistic Muslim, it, it took time to develop that trope. and but it was really rooted in, in the Middle East. As obviously 9-11 hit um, and we you know, entered into these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the, the picture evolved <laughs> um, where now you have images and thoughts of terrorists um, being, being pushed into the American imaginary. A terrorist, what is a terrorist? What is evil? What is bad? What is the access of evil? What does that mean? You know, I had to hear as a teenager, as somebody in high school, I think it was in 2002 during the State of the Union speech where George Bush said on national television that Iran belonged to the access of evil. And I had to reconcile, what does that mean, evil? You know, and when you're a teenager and you're a young girl and you hear those words, you internalize that. You know, am I evil? Did I come from a place that's evil? What does that mean? How does that hurt? How does that, what, what? Terrorist, evil, suicide, bomber? These are words that are now being associated with a population that I belong to. And yeah, it, um, was it sort of overnight? I mean, it, my impression is that it sort of was a switch that flipped in terms of where the stereotype. No. No, it wasn't. It built time. So mm. these are all about others. And it took time before we looked inward and there were events on U.S. soil mm -hmm. um, where now, you know, especially through these wars, it wasn't overnight. It took time for these tropes to develop. But, you know, throughout the, the 2000s and into the 2010s, you start seeing words like loyal, patriot, violent, emerge these stereotypes hmm. and these are what i think people think of when they think of muslim they think they think somebody who's violent they think somebody who's a typically a darker bearded man somebody who's backward somebody who's different somebody who's disloyal um and, and i think it reverberates right even as i say in the book hillary clinton you know in the in presidential debates, you know, she she said Muslim Americans, when she rose to their defense, she said they are America's eyes and ears. Like our only utility right. is in surveillance <laughs> because naturally we are disloyal and unpatriotic. And if only we could surveil each other, mm. we could serve our country, <laughs> you know, um, it just, it really, it really, I think, shows the the profound um, distrust that people have in the U.S. Muslim population. And I would say, sorry for the really long-winded answer, it's the trope that exists today, I think, is rooted in 
an, an image that people have about a Muslim here at home, and it's not taking into account the vast diversity of the population, but it's about somebody who is dangerous. It's about typically a male, and it's typically someone who looks darker with a more olive skinned phenotype, um, who's bearded, um, and who cannot be trusted. And uh, you see this right in surveys too, like the ANES asks stereotypes. Um, and you see when you compare um, different groups and, and Muslims, it, it pops. And it's, um, yeah, I, I would say that's where we've landed so far. It yep. can change. I, I had wondered what what it is that makes these stereotypes such potent in like triggers to prejudice and, and, and discrimination. And it reminds me of the work in psychology on how moral perceptions are at the heart of how we evaluate other people. And these are all stereotypes that touch this moral nerve, right? They're all about, can I trust this person? Will they hurt me? Um, are they loyal? Will they? Are they an affront to my dedication to this country? And so what I wonder is, does that help explain why these have become as pervasive as they have, whereas other biases may have less potency because they don't pinch the moral nerve quite so hard. Yeah, I think that the root of all this is a security concern. Um, and if you think about, you know, just very basic human needs, we need, have a human need to feel secure. And I think that when you reduce a population to, and you're just so reductive about it, to they are an affront and they are going to they, they are a terrorist, they are other, they are an enemy combatant, right? You've, you've now taken away any humanistic right quality and you've made it such that this other group is going to challenge your security and your very livelihood and the, the very existence of your population in your country and that you've, you've created, and so I'm not sure if, if that theory would cover a security concern, but to me, this is all rooted in a zero sum, as long as they exist, we can't exist. Because they want to get rid of us and they want to harm us. And um, that's, I think, a very irresponsible um, description that's been painted by policymakers, by, by the media. I think they are very complicit in this. Um, when you have a 20 second soundbite and a few hundred characters to tell a story, right? I mean, you can be incredibly reductive. And, and I think they are. I, I really, I really think they are. And they've harmed this community because they've equated the two challenging um, people's feelings of safety. The, the other interesting thing is historically, you sort of trace racialization of this group in this country and how this was a group that had been considered white on, on census data uh, and in other sort of forms. So maybe you could speak a little bit about like what that means and then what what that trajectory then took. Yeah, so I think like many other um, populations, uh, non-Black Muslim groups have long fought for privileges of whiteness and recognition of whiteness. And why is that, right? Um, voting rights <laughs> extended to free white persons. And this was something that obviously was not being afforded to, to African-Americans. But other groups long fought in racial prerequisite cases 
for recognition of whiteness. It allowed them to own property. It allowed them to build wealth. It allowed them to vote. It allowed them to do a number. So you see, I mean, just mobility in the United States was about a determination of your whiteness. And so groups constantly were arguing their whiteness. You see this among Latinx populations, Asian populations, Middle Eastern, South Asian. I mean, there's just so many, I think there's 52 racial prerequisite cases that were argued in the courts, um, in circuit courts, in the Supreme, two in the Supreme Court, um, where different groups were arguing and trying to get this recognition. And Middle Easterners who were Muslim were no different. They did so as well. And so you see this victory almost where they were afforded privileges of whiteness, somewhat ironically, you know, especially uh, with this case in 1915 called Dow versus the uh, United States, where a Syrian man was recognized as white. And that sort of um, eventually allowed them to, to be recognized as, as white. Um, but as, you know, numerous scholars like Neda Mahboule or John Tehranian have argued, um, there are limits to whiteness. There was a Faustian pact with whiteness. Um, in fact, they were not white. And the second that um, these newer, larger immigrant populations came, so, you know, if these cases are being won in 1915, and then you have a surge of immigrants coming in in 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, the 2000s, well, the everyday lived experiences of these groups, particularly in a post 9-11 world, are not those that are akin to whiteness. And in fact, you might want to highlight that these groups are not white and that they're having experiences that are not akin uh, to, to white Americans and they can't do so. And so in some ways, you know, it privileged their uh, predecessors, <laughs> but it it's really harmed the populations. Um, and so it's a very nuanced understanding of, of what it means to be white because to this day, we don't have a MENA category on our census. And those who would identify um, as Middle Eastern North African do not have the possibility of doing so. This extends to education, this extends to employment, this extends to representation, this extends to federal dollars, this extends, I mean, just, you can imagine how informative it would be to know about um, the roots of this population. And uh, unfortunately, you know, we just we just don't. Any effort that we had at having a Middle Eastern North African category, which was supposed to be on the 2020 census, uh, were mm. unfortunately um, taken away. You could think that the way to help address these things or move forward is to get more representation in leadership and political positions. And in some ways, a lot of the stuff that you've done looks at why that hopeful path forward is still riddled with challenges, right? In terms of how do people evaluate political candidates? How do people try to enter the political system? How do we um, use media to talk about uh, about these groups? So I had a question about the candidate evaluation studies in particular. So you do these school studies yeah. where you take a kind of classic experimental approach, manipulating the identity of an apparent candidate and seeing if people would be willing to vote for them. And one of the things I didn't quite follow was that there was this kind of competing partisan difference where mm -hmm. Muslim candidates seemed to be more welcome in Republican races, but less welcome by Republicans themselves. <laughs> so yeah. so that I couldn't quite parse those two or, or sort of reconcile those two things. 
Yeah. So I, okay. So I think you're mixing two different studies and I want to like clarify uh, if I can. So the candidate evaluation studies find that, and I think similar to other, other studies in political science, at least that, um, Muslims who run as Republicans fare better than Muslims who run as Democrats. And, you know, there's a lot of scholarship here, especially about Latinx candidates, that um, Latinx candidates who run as Republicans are seen as more electable, that people are more likely to vote for them. And I think that what happens is that there is something about social norms that, you know, that, that voters feel that minority candidates who run as conservatives are more willing to be to offer more honest criticism of their groups and therefore are an asset to that party <laughs> um, because uh, they show that um, the party is not bigoted um, and they show that uh, look there is a member of this group that's off that's willing to offer honest criticism and so I think there's there's a number of things that happen there that that drive uh, the willingness to, uh, to to vote for for minority candidates who who come from the Republican Party. Um, and another scholarship, I, another study in, in the in the book, I find that um, when Muslims write their Republican legislators, they're often ignored. And um, this is important because, and I think I think it's important to try to take those two pieces of evidence together, which is that, you know, Republicans are not going to be responsive to <clears throat> Muslim constituents. This is not something that they, um, they're going to do at a similar rate as their white constituents, um, as, as we see in the studies, but, um, Democrats are also not serving <laughs> their their Muslim constituents um, very well either. Um, and so I think on the one hand, the first study is about elites, and the second is about um, is about you know everyday voters. And so you know, I think when I when I put those two things together, it tells me that you know if you can code switch and you can kind of move away from being rooted in, in your in your identity and and you want to run for office, you have a better shot at it running as a Republican. Um, but how much you can offer representation to minority populations, particularly Muslim populations, is going to be limited if you're running for, for that party. And then on the flip side, as an everyday voter, you're probably going to be better served by Democrats, but not much. Um, and that's that's really um, a tragedy, I think. Um, so, you know, I think the solution to all this is not simple. Um, it would be great to have descriptive representation, and I think we're very lucky to see some strides in in that space, but we're not quite there yet. So th that poses challenges. The media stuff also shows negative media are super effective, <laughs> positive media less so. So, you know, there's. You know, we're left with this question of like, well, okay, the problem is clear. You've painted a picture of it. And so either based on the data or based on just sort of where do we go next in terms of what do we try? <laughs> what are the roads forward that you see? Is there any optimism for strategies or changes or, or ways of talking with people 
that can sort of chip away at this misperception of like what Muslim identity is and also the stereotypes is stereotypes and prejudices that come along with it. Yeah. So I think representation matters um, and, and not just political representation. So representation in, in Hollywood representation in the news media, that's I think more, um, more full and captures, I don't want to say more fair, um, but I want to say more full um, and less reductive, I think matters. Um, I think the way that politicians speak about the, the group matters um, and the way that they've, they speak to the, the community matters, um, but you can't control these organizations. So what can you do as, as a group? Um, as a group, you can run. You can run for office. You can run for local office. Um, you can do what our our leaders, you know, our like Muslim leaders are doing right now, which is be a part of the progressive coalition. You know, join in, be seen, be heard. That's something you can do. Um, you can. It's it's really crazy, but you can <laughs> you can make a difference on social media. Um, I know so many folks who have started social media pages, and um, who are have you know 80,000 followers to half a million followers and who are advertising essentially what it means to be a Muslim in America. What does it mean to be a queer Muslim in America? What does it mean to be a black Muslim in America? What is, you know, I think highlighting that type of visibility, highlighting our intersections, highlighting that we hold multiple identities, I think is important. Um, and I think people are doing it really well. And I guess the final, the final thing is that I will say that um, conditions have changed on the ground. The Trump administration and the Trump years changed outcomes for Muslims. And they changed, I mean, obviously outcomes for a lot of groups. But in this last year, we saw Muslims decline in salience. And we saw African-Americans and especially Asian-Americans rise in salience. And I think that's important too, right? Um, you may not expect them to always be salient. And I think, uh, you know, in some ways it's, it's a bit of a, a breather. And, and I wonder myself, you know, just as an empirical question, how has that decline in salience shifted attitudes and the importance of anti-Muslim attitudes in determining um, hostile policy positions? So I think these are open questions, but yeah. We'll see. We'll see what happens next. <laughs> we'll see. And so for you, just in terms of, of work that you're doing, what's on the horizon, either in this space or outside of it? Uh, I know you sort of, this is a piece of the scholarship that you do. And so or to give you an opportunity just to yeah. sort of give give folks a, a, an entry point into the other kind of stuff that you work on. Yeah, I, I'm looking at um, alt-right uh, speech right now, um, trying to understand how, um, how social media um, discussion of Muslims and uh, Jews has translated into, or mirrors sort of offline hate crimes towards Muslims and Jews. So right now I'm, I'm you know, working with a couple colleagues um, and trying to, to understand that link. And, you know, we're seeing that there's actually a target substitution that um, once these, these extremist groups are activated online, they don't need much encouragement and um, they can switch in their targets. So Unite the Right is a really important 
an, I think, overlooked rally uh, where we see um, a shift from a focus on Muslims to a focus on, on Jews among these populations. And then similarly, we see a decline in targets of, a decline in, in hate crimes that target Muslims and an increase uh, in anti-Semitic hate crimes. And so, you know, trying to understand how that happens and what the processes are, it's sort of next on, on my horizon. And yeah, I'm actually, I just bought an intro to social psychology oh. book <laughs> and I'm teaching myself a little bit, sure. trying to, you know, this, yeah, just trying to educate myself a little bit more on um, on prejudice. So really, this is an amazing career path insofar as we can always learn. So that's that's kind of what's next for me. That's right. You're dipping your toe in social psych. I'm dipping my toe in political science. <laughs> that's just how it works. That's, that's the beauty of it. It's pandemic time. Yeah, right. Know? Read up on whatever you want. Crisis of identity. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. Uh, and it was, it was great to hear about. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. This was a lovely conversation. I really appreciate it. That'll do it for another episode of Opinion Science. Thank you so much to Dr. Nazita Lajavardi for talking about her work. Once again, her book is Outsiders at Home, The Politics of American Islamophobia. You can find a link to the book in the show notes and you can see the book cover that we talked so much about. You'll also find a link to Nazita's website and a transcript of this episode. For more about this show, head on over to opinionsciencepodcast.com. Follow the show at OpinionSciPod on Twitter and Facebook and anywhere you get podcasts. And if you like this stuff, it would mean a lot if you left a review on Apple Podcasts or any other app. We've gotten some nice comments recently. Here's one that says, love this podcast, in-depth, thoughtful discussion that's always relevant. Can't wait for each new episode. Thank you. Learn more about the science of opinions and persuasion with one of my online courses. More info at opinionsciencepodcast.com. Okay, that's it. Thank you for tuning in, and I'll see you in a couple weeks for more opinion science. Bye-bye. Okay.